Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. It's time to put an end to this political circus that puts Hoffman's radical agenda first at the expense of everyday Arizonans who rely on the state government for really critical services. So if we don't have the Senate confirmation process and the accountability on behalf of the taxpayer, then we really do have some rogue people sitting in top positions, making executive decisions and who are not elected for a very long time. It is my duty to the citizens of Arizona to stay in. They think that I'm going away. They got another thing coming. It's bad economics. It's not good politics either. But does it actually force the political class to understand what a deep, deep, deep hole Americans' finances are in? The tangible effect of it for the average middle class person is that if you work and live in a right-to-work state, you make on average about $10,000 less every single year than your not right-to-work counterparts. And that's just unacceptable. Very few of us will ever be asked to endure what John McCain endured. But all of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? And with me to talk about Arizona's U.S. Senate race may be coming into focus. Governor Hobbs going around the state Senate and more are Marcus Delartino of First Strategic. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. And Gael Esposito of Creosote Partners. Gael, good morning to you. Good morning to you, too. So let's start with uh, some of the Senate stuff. We heard uh, a clip from a video that uh, Carrie Lake put out. She has been teasing this now for a few days. She's been talking about potentially uh, joining the U.S. Senate race uh, in October, she's been talking about that for a little while now. Marcus, are, are we fairly clear now? This huge announcement that she's teasing for uh, October 10th is her candidacy as a U.S. Senate candidate? I, you bowl me over if it doesn't happen. I mean, I, I think it's as clear as day what's coming. And is this something that Republicans are happy about? Well, you know, that's always a tough question because you're asking, you know, the enti- is the entire everybody who identifies as a Republican, sure. are they all happy? Let's paint everybody and, you know, with one that's impossible brush. to ever yeah. happen. And, um, you know, nobody's ever got 100 percent of Republicans, much less got 100 percent of Democrats. So uh, but, you know, I'd say largely the Republican base is happy about it. But I will tell you from just a political sort of science professor standpoint here, I think it'll be the most fascinating Senate race in the entire country to watch because you don't have a typical R versus D race matching up here. You have an RDI race. You've got a well-funded independent um, and you've got an independent who's an incumbent. Um, And so the dynamics are a lot different than what people are traditionally used to. Well, and Gail, we also saw this week NBC News uh, got a leaked memo from the Kirsten Cinema campaign, which laid out what they feel is her path to victory. And it basically says that she can win by uh, getting 10 to 20 percent of Democrats, 60 to 70 percent of independents and 25 to 35 percent of Republicans. Does that seem like a winning strategy to you if you're Kirsten Cinema? I think the only numbers they got right there was the amount you'd get from Democratic voters right Pretty now. Pretty low. Yes. I, I don't see how voters in Arizona uh, would go that way. I think that's an incredibly high number of uh, independent voters that she thinks she's going to be able to pull. Not all independent voters uh, are a monolith that just appreciates somebody with an I next to their name. Sure. They have very divergent opinions, which is why they're independent in the first place. 
And to expect that kind of unanimity, I think that's going to be really hard for her to achieve. On the the Republican side, though, I mean, she clearly won a fair amount of Republican support in her first race. And we've seen that over the last couple of cycles, sort of disaffected Republicans, anti-Trump Republicans have voted Democrat. Is there a chance that in a three-way race, some of those voters, some of those maybe uh, Katie Hobbs voters, some of those Mark Kelly voters, maybe they go for the independent cinema as opposed to the Democrat Ruben Gallego? There's obviously a potential of that. And as Marcus, Marcus said, there's really no analog to this race. You know, the closest thing might be the Alaska Senate race um, last cycle. Uh, but what I think is really critical here is that in every single poll that we've seen, whether it's a three-way or a head-to-head, Ruben Gallegos ahead. Uh, he's leading in these polls consistently, and I don't see that changing. Kirsten Cinema is a much more known quantity than your usual senator. Uh, she is somebody who has a near presidential level of awareness. You know, once you get that uh, SNL uh, uh, <laughs> uh, skit, you're you're pretty in the public uh, eye. So. I think it's going to be really tough for her to shift those numbers. What do you think, Marcus? I, I would say, and this part of why this makes this race so interesting is, you know, Carrie Lake is pretty well defined. I mean, I think everybody in Arizona knows, knows who she is. I think to a certain extent that that extends to Kirsten Cinema, But Ruben Gallego really hasn't been well defined. He, he has the smallest congressional district from a population of voters. Um, and I think when we get into the thick of this and the throws and the punches start coming, which are going to be nasty, um, Kerry Lake and Kirsten Sinema are both going to come out of the gate trying to define him. Does, does his numbers come down? Um, and, and to a certain extent, that's a path to victory for Kirsten. But Kirsten's also going to need a high turnout model um, and certainly a high turnout with independents. Um, and is that going to happen this cycle? There's, I mean, we're at close to 400 days out. Anything is humanly possible <laughs> at this point. Um, but, you know, that's what we're trying to evaluate at this point it is if Donald Trump is the nominee, if Joe Biden is the nominee, um, what's that turnout model look like in Arizona? And is there a com- comparison there to Kerry Lake running with Ruben Gallego? Um, and how does that dynamic affect the voter's choice? Because clearly there's 50 percent of voters that are not enthused about either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, and I think that's going to factor into a lot of voters' decisions this cycle. Well, Gail, you mentioned Kirsten Cinema having the SNL treatment. Carrie Lake, of course, has been noted on SNL as well. So you have two very well-known candidates there. And I wonder sort of, obviously, as Marcus said, we're very far out. I mean, it's a million years politically now, but how do you, assuming that Carrie Lake is in fact going to jump in the race and assuming that Kirsten Sinema is in fact going to jump into the race, how do you see those three? And again, assuming that Carrie Lake wins the Republican primary, how do you, how do you see that race shaking out this, this far out at least? Yeah, I, I think Representative Gallego, Congressman Gallego is really starting with a, a huge leg up here. I think he has the personal story. I think he has uh, the financing um, to really go the distance. I honestly think his brashness, his authenticity is is going to be a benefit here. In that effort to define him, he's going to be able to really push back uh, effectively um, and be himself. That's uh, the the one thing you can always count on the congressman to do is is uh, say it like it is. And I think voters are going to resonate with that. Well, it seems, Marcus, you have three candidates here who are ne- not necessarily afraid to sort of say what's on their mind. I was going to say, are you going to call them all wallflowers? <laughs> 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 you know, like, these uh, and 
Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. They are not shy one bit. Um, and so, it, I mean, I, can you just imagine the debate? I mean, who's going to get in the last word on this one? It's going to make the Republican primary debate the other night look like a kid's show. So, um, you know, and, and the other thing that's you've got now one of the most interesting, the most, sorry, the most interesting Senate race in the entire U.S., in the most targeted state for the presidential election in the United States. Listen, if you're a TV or radio reporter and you don't get a Christmas bonus next year, <laughs> something is wrong because there's going to be more money spent in this state per capita than any other state in the commercial Union. Commercial TV. We, 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 don't, uh, we don't partake in true. that. This is true. Let's, uh, I apologize. Let's clarify. No, that's okay. So let's move on to uh, another major story from this week involving uh, Governor Hobbs deciding that basically she'd had enough with uh, the committee in the state Senate set up to vet her nominees and, and confirm her nominees, send her nominees to the state Senate to be confirmed. She withdrew 13 of them and named them uh, executive deputy directors of these agencies, basically bypassing the Senate. Kyle, there's not really a ton of precedent for this. And perhaps not surprisingly, Republicans in the Senate are not all that thrilled. Well, Governor Ducey did this in just the previous administration. This is not without precedent. We've seen it happen before. And honestly, I'm surprised that it took this long to get to that point. And it really shows how much the governor did want to go through the traditional process. Uh, but what we saw was a continued willingness from Senate Republicans and particularly Senator uh, Jake Hoffman um, to change the rules, to break the rules, to bend the rules, which is uh, tends to be a habit of his, uh, and make it impossible uh, to actually function and run our state government in an effective way. Uh, so personally, I'm very glad Governor Hobbs decided that she was no longer going to uh, play their games and was going to do the business of the people and make sure our state government works. Marcus, there have been Democrats, as I'm sure you know, calling on the governor to do this for quite a while now. Um, does it surprise you at all that, that she has taken this step at the time that she's taken it? No, I in you know, from a simplistic standpoint, I think politically both sides got exactly what they wanted. <laughs> um, and so, you know, both sides won, frankly, politically. Um, the Republicans wanted to really put the fire to her um, and she really wanted to paint a picture of, you know, how how these people have treated the nominees and both sides are able to do that. Here's the thing, though, as I pointed out, you know, the elections are about 400 days away, roughly. Um, we're not going to remember this in 400 days. Mm. So um, I know that it seems like for us in the in the bubble, this is a big deal. Uh, but the guy who's going to work right now on the construction site has no idea what we're talking about. And he's going to be casting a ballot in 400 days. So um, some of these things, I think, are great for theatrics. I think they're great for building a base, um, certainly appeals to the Republican base, what, what the president and, and Mr. Hoffman are doing. I think what the governor's doing appeals to her base. Um, the question is how it's going to affect others and independents. And the fact of the matter is I don't think they're going to remember or know about those. So do you think this is going to be one of those issues that there is a lawsuit? I mean, Warren Peterson, the Senate president, threatened a lawsuit. But Senate Republicans have threatened lawsuits over the course of the governor's term so far. And in many cases, if not most, those lawsuits have not actually materialized. Yeah, I, I think there's a chance that there uh, there'll be a, a court case on this. But I will tell you that there's also about a thousand other things that they can work on to the same extent that the base wants to work on. Um, 
you know, and frankly, with what's going on with the government shutdown, um, I think there's another opportunity for Republicans to pivot, another opportunity for Democrats to pivot. So if it gets lost in the shuffle, I'm not going to be shocked. And Kyle, we also saw uh, State Treasurer Kimberly Yee coming out it, with a few different statements about this and not seating a couple of the the executive deputy directors at the a board of investment meeting. Um, I'm curious what you make of of like her involvement in all of this. Remembering she ran for governor last a couple of years ago uh, before dropping out and running for re-election as treasurer. Yeah, I I think what I have to say to that is I'm just proud of her for finding a way to stay relevant, keep her name in the news. I, I think that's all she really wanted from this. And that's all this really was. Uh, it has no effect. It has no bearing. And, you know, good for her for scoring a point. So, Marcus, you mentioned government shutdown. Let's talk about it. It's uh, coming up. And um, I guess uh, tomorrow is the last day of the fiscal. I'm just looking at the calendar here on the computer screen here. <laughs> After remember how many days are in September again? Um, but is there any hope at this point of avoiding this, of the House and Senate, the president getting together and coming up with something? I mean, I just caught the news on the – I waited till the last second to see what Kevin McCarthy was saying. And I don't think – I he's got a proposal out there and I think it's going nowhere. So I, I have little to no hope. And I also – it's a sign when the government already has signs out in front of the national monuments that they'll be closed in the shutdown. It's a pretty good sign that we're not going anywhere. Um, and I think Biden has already said, because I think McCarthy came up with a 30-day CR. Um, continuing resolution. Continuing resolution, which is not going to please the people, uh, that Freedom Caucus. Um, so I'm not too sure that gets them the votes. But even if it did, President Biden's already said he's going to veto it. So um, – Hold on to your hats um, and check your passports because you're not going to be getting them renewed for a little bit. Gail, do you get the sense, assuming as Marcus uh, suggests, and I think sort of the conventional wisdom is at this point that there will be a shutdown. There's going to be a, a long shutdown, a short shutdown. What do you think? I think it is going to last as long as uh, each of them feels they can continue to try to pin the blame on the other. That's the point we're at now is just shifting blame. We're not at a point of trying to find solutions. Um, and so I think that that is uh, going to last for quite a bit, um, unfortunately. Uh, but to Marcus's point, you know, the voter who's going into that ballot box who doesn't pay attention to this day to day, they're going to recognize those material effects uh, pretty quickly. And there's going to be a lot of pressure there. And I think Republicans uh, are going to be left holding the bag here, unfortunately. Well, them. Marcus, we've heard from um, uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who's basically acknowledged that in general, when there's a government shutdown, it's Republicans who take the majority of the blame, Well, whether or not it's, it's actually their fault. Agreed. And it certainly happened when Newt Gingrich was in charge and that had a backlash. Um, you know, Republicans, <laughs> regardless of the politics, there is a valid point to be heard here, and that is spending's a little out of control. Um, and if you look at where we are in our national debt, uh, if you look at our trade differences, um, there needs that we need to come back into balance at some point here. And the question for some of these Republicans, um, and I and I think they've got a point that needs to be considered, is can we get to pre-COVID uh, spending levels rather than where we are in continuing at COVID spending levels? Um, and I don't I don't think that the whole Congress is sort of there yet. Um, but at some point here, we're going to have a reckoning. It doesn't matter if it's whether it's this Congress or 10 years from now. At some point, uh, economics at some point is a science um, and something's going to break. So 
we should work on it sooner rather than later. Are you suggesting that Congress have a serious conversation about something, Marcus? I know. About, what would I say? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I did not get much sleep last night. <laughs> well, so, Gail, what what effects do you think the average voter will see? Maybe people who are not, you know— reading Politico and super in tune with, you know, all the different machinations behind the scenes. But like the government's going to shut down and and there are going to be effects beyond just, you know, the inability to go to national parks. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the biggest effect is going to be um, for families who have young children who rely on uh, those benefits to make sure that they get fed. Right. Like that they uh, are um, not having to deal with hunger each and every day Uh, in those are the types of impacts that I think are are going to be the most profound. Um, we're going to be hurting uh, the most vulnerable populations, and that's why this is so critical. And unfortunately, we get lost in these games and this bickering um, and uh, these esoteric conversations uh, instead of actually doing what is necessary um, to help people. I, I don't want to scare to people too much, though. I want to reiterate the point that if you're getting a Social Security check, you will continue to get a Social Security yes. check. If you've got a problem with Social Security and you try and pick up the phone and call them, you're not going to get anybody who picks up the phone. Border Patrol agents and customs will still be down there. Sure. Um, they're just not getting paid, which is – I don't know how motivated people are when they're not getting paid, but they will get back pay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, service members aren't getting paid. Sure. They will get back pay, but service members don't get paid a lot in the military. And so they're scraping by. Um, and so that, to your point, I mean, these are the real life effects. Marcus, I want to ask you about uh, President Biden in town yesterday uh, announcing uh, some federal money to build a, a library for uh, John McCain, I know you, somebody for whom you worked. Um, but also the president was pretty blunt about uh, the, the state of democracy and sort of the state of our country. I'm curious what you made of using this particular moment and sort of using the memory and the legacy of John McCain to sort of make his point about where where politics are right now? I, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) here's the the one thing I would say is that I'm having I'm, I'm debating this whole thing in that I think John McCain obviously would agree with him on that point. The irony that's lost on me here is that John McCain was the number one anti-pork barrel spender in the entire United States Congress. Um, Jeff Flake wouldn't have started it without John McCain. John Shattuck wouldn't have started it. Hayworth, Salmon, the list goes on and on. He had a list in the U.S. Senate on pork barrel spending. And so for me reflecting last night, I was wondering what John would think about this federal money going to build him a library, which he wasn't a big fan of libraries anyway. So... (laughs) Um, I, so I sort of, I, I know I probably upset a few people here, but I didn't, that did keep me up a little bit last night. Um, but I do think that John, that John would absolutely agree with Joe. And I think you can see that in his, I mean, you can see that in his 2008 campaign and the things he, way he conducted himself and his speeches. If you paid attention to those, you can certainly see it, uh, in the election night speeches, concession speech Mm -hmm. that he gave, um, and I think that they would be walking uh, arm in arm uh, promoting that kind of message throughout the United States. And the other thing I will tell you privately between us kids, if John McCain were still alive, he'd probably kick Lindsey Graham straight in the ding ding right now. <laughs> wow. So there you go. Wasn't expecting that. No, you probably weren't. No, I certainly wasn't. <laughs> well, so, Gail, I, I wonder, like, 
I'll let you recover from that. Thank you. Um, Is it helpful in some ways for President Biden to be able to invoke the name of a Republican in terms of talking about some of these sort of core democracy issues to make it not just a a Democrat versus Republican issue, but in his words, make it more of an American issue? He can obviously he and and John McCain were were good friends. Biden eulogized him at, at his funeral. Is it helpful, do you think, for the president? I I don't know if it's necessarily helpful for the president specifically, but I, I understand why he chose that moment, why he chose uh, uh, honoring Senator McCain in that way. Um, we are at a real, I, I would say, dangerous crossroads here in Arizona. Um, our democracy is constantly under threat from various conspiracy theorists uh, who at times, um, you know, resort to violent threats. Uh, And that is uh, something that I I think we don't grapple with uh, uh, fully enough. Um, And it's something that I think we we do have to keep an eye towards um, because, you know, we are a close state and and a few shifts here or there. could have uh, bad policy consequences and, you know, bad consequences for uh, people being able to access the ballot. Just to sort of piggyback on that, the one thing, you know, I think that the Biden administration thinks that this will change votes, change minds and help him at the ballot box. And look, there's, you know, the new Washington Post polls out and it's got him 10 points down. If this trend continues, at some point there's going to be serious dialogue within the DNC about we got to get Gavin Newsom on the ballot. We got to do a convention floor fight, um, number one. Number two is, you know, he's come to Arizona and is going to continue to come to Arizona because, as I said, we're the number one state he target. He hasn't gone to the border. Uh, immigration's the – it's a huge issue not only in this country but in Arizona. So um, he's got to start – working on sort of the mechanics a lot more if he wants to compete here in Arizona. Yeah, this is the second time he's been here just in the last several weeks. He was up in northern Arizona for the the new National Monument up there. Safe to say Air Force One is going to be at Sky Harbor a lot in the next uh, 400 days or so. Yeah, you can bet being stuck in traffic on several times in the next year. (laughs) A very popular move. Absolutely. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Gael Esposito of Creaso Partners, Marcus Tellertino of First Strategic. Thanks to you both for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.